following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We, we're coming today to Matthew 7, and we're starting on what is really the conclusion now to the Sermon on the Mount. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground already, and those of you that have been with us on this journey since February, we've come a long way already. Uh, so we're coming now into the concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is great news. Four weeks to go still, okay, so hold on to your hats. Uh, we're not there yet, but this final section has four passages to it, but they're all quite similar, and they all follow a rhythm, and they all have a certain cadence to them, because what Jesus is doing now is He's really bringing us to a point of decision. He's taught us all of these things. It's been so wide-ranging, and He's not going to let us at this point just wander away. He's not going to let you off the hook after you've come this far, but He's going to put these two choices in front of you, and He's going to say, now you need to make a choice. Now you need to choose. And so what He gives us in these final four passages are four contrasting images, four images with, with, with these binary choices to them. So let me just give you the roadmap briefly. This is where we're heading now in this final section. Today we have the wide and the narrow road. And then, next section, the good and the bad fruit, or the good and the bad trees. Then, down in verse 21 to 23, true and false disciples. And then finally, the wise and the foolish builders. And so, Jesus is saying there is this choice to be made between the crowd of people that are just spectators to all of this and those who are disciples. And he's saying you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to decide what side of the line you're on and put a stake in the ground. So it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge, but welcome to the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's not like we haven't been here before. So we're diving into this pretty short passage today to start this concluding section. Just a couple of verses, I'll read them for you in Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Pretty simple image got a wide road and we've got a narrow road. Uh, let's try and understand what these two roads represent. So first of all, let's think about the broad road, this broad, wide road with a wide gate. Uh, Monday morning, I went for a walk along Takapuna Beach. It was actually good weather for a change on Monday. And so we made the most of it. And I think so did the rest of Auckland. There were tons of people out there on the beach, this massive pedestrian highway up and down Takapuna Beach. It was a glorious morning. Sun was glistening on the wider Matter Harbour, and it was just a pristine morning to go for a walk. This was a big, broad beach space. Even though the tide was coming in, there was still all sorts of room for all sorts of people. This was a big, broad road, and maybe that's the kind of road that Jesus is describing. He probably wasn't talking about a beach in reality, although there are beaches in Israel. Uh, but it maybe was a big, wide farm road. It could have been a big road through a city. It could have been a beach. It's a big, wide open space, which is easy to walk, where there's nothing really to stumble over in your path. The terrain is pretty flat and smooth and gentle. 
and the going is, is easy on the broad road. So the question is, what does the broad road represent? And I've wrestled with this as I've, as I've studied this and thought about it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and there's different ways of getting at it, but here is the best way that I've found to describe this to you. The broad road is the road of self. I think this is what it comes down to. The broad road is the road of self. That fundamentally, people on the broad road, people walking the broad road, are living a self-governed, self-directed life. It doesn't mean that they're all selfish people. So don't think you know, they're bad people that do bad things. It's much deeper than that. It is that those on this road, when you peel back all the layers, when you get to the heart of their identity and the heart of their existence, the person on the throne of their lives is self. It is them. The highest source of authority in their lives is them. The one making ultimate decisions and directing their paths is them. The operating system for their lives is them. The engine room of their lives is them. The mainframe of their lives is them. They are living a self-directed, self-governed, self-determined life. That's what we would call an egocentric life. That is a self-centric life rather than a theocentric life, which was a God-centered life. So it is fundamentally this egocentric existence that defines people on the broad road. And that's the road that people have been walking down as long as there have been human beings. When Eve first reached out and took the fruit from the tree, she took the first step on the broad road. That was the wide road with the wide gate. That was humanity saying, thanks very much, God, but I will do it my way. Thanks very much, but I want to live independently of your authority. I want to be able to live the self-determined life. And so that was humanity attempting to subvert the relationship between ourselves and God. So that rather, that rather than our lives orbiting around God, it's now God orbiting around us. It's now me in the driver's seat making my own decisions, and God is conveniently serving my life and my agenda. That's an egocentric life. That's the broad road. That's what happened in Genesis 3. That was the first sin of humanity. And ever since that time, human beings have just followed Eve down that road and kept on walking the broad, wide road. In Jesus' day, plenty of people were walking the broad road. You think about the crowd that was listening to Jesus. A lot of people, maybe most people in that crowd, were walking the broad road. They may have been interested in Jesus. So don't think this is simply describing people who reject Christ. They may have been attracted to Jesus. They may have been interested in Him. They might have been interested in His miracles. They might have been interested in what He could do for them. But fundamentally, when you peel back all those layers and the core of their being, the one on the throne of their lives was self. At the top of the pile, the king of the hill, was still themselves, still a self-governed life. And still today, this is the road that most people around us are walking, right? This is the road. Billions and billions and billions of people around us are walking, a self-determined, self-governed, self-centered, self-gratifying, self-obsessed life where self is making the rules. 
I want to just give you three versions of the broad road, because it comes in different shapes and sizes, right? All sorts of different iterations and permutations of the broad road, but let me describe three ways that this looks in our contemporary society. See if you recognize any of these roads. Firstly, the narcissism highway. Some of you taken a drive down this one? Maybe seen others hooning by? The narcissism highway. This, I would say, is the dominant road of Western culture. This road runs like State Highway 1 down the middle of the West. This is, so we've taken the broad road, we've made an entire culture out of this road, and narcissism basically says, our culture basically says, your job in life is to look deep inside yourself and find your true personal individual identity, find out the true, special, unique, authentic you, and then if you can't, if you can't find it, then create it, construct it, and then once you have determined your identity, you live that out and bring your identity to its truest, fullest, highest, deepest possible expression and live this self-actualized life before the rest of the world so that everyone else sees how amazing and awesome you are. That's basically narcissism, and that is the cultural script that our culture hands us and hands our kids and says, this is your story. In fact, it's so ingrained and conditioned, we don't even think of it as a story. We just think of it as life. This is just what it means to live in the West. And what may start with healthy self-esteem and positive well-being continues to go on and on and on and becomes a generation of people that think the world revolves around themselves and think that they are in the center of the universe. It's been called the age of the big me where I'm the center of the canvas. I'm the big deal. And everyone else's job is to see and appreciate how awesome I am. That's our narcissistic culture. That's the broad road. That's self on the throne projected out into an entire culture. And, and by the way, there's a version of this that we've absorbed, I think, as Christians, where we've just kind of baptized this narcissism and then called it Christianity, but we've essentially made faith all about ourselves. So we have a version of Christian faith where it's about how I feel and how church makes me feel and how the worship songs make me feel and how the sermon caters to my needs and how the church meets me and, and serves me and addresses my needs and my own personal spirituality and what's going to help me and God serving my dreams, my plans, my agenda, my ambition. God is essentially co-opted to help us fulfill our life goals. Now, we call that Christianity, it's really a thinly veiled form of narcissism. Because underneath all of those layers, who's on the throne? It's not God, it's still you. God's just conveniently there now, partly to make ourselves feel better. We, we feel like we are serving God because He's involved in our lives. But His place in our lives is still to help us actualize our own dreams, plans, and ambitions. That is still a narcissistic life. We've just got a spiritualized form of it in the church. So the narcissism highway, you might recognize yourselves driving down that one. Uh, here's another road that represents the broad road, morality place. I called it place because I think most streets that are a place have a dead end. Is that right? I used to live on a place that was a dead end. It was a cul-de-sac. And morality place is a dead end. That's the point. So Morality place, like morality has had a bit of a comeback in our culture, do you think, over the last few years? Like there's all this talk of 
being kind to one another. We're all about being good people and being good citizens. And that's good. Like, as far as it goes, that's good. We shouldn't rubbish that. It is good and important to be kind to each other. I think the problem is now that we think that's the whole, that's the whole deal, that the point of life is just to be a good person, and that as long as we are genuinely kind and as long as we're fairly reasonable to other people, that's what's required of us. That's what God must require of us. Mark Sayers talks about this in one of his books, and he, he says, Western culture is now described as a culture where we want the kingdom without the king. I thought that was a really good way of putting it. What we want is the kingdom, but we don't want the king. In other words, there's a lot of values of the kingdom that our culture subscribes to. A lot of non-Christians would look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, yeah, there are some good ethics there that I'd buy into. Yeah, we shouldn't judge each other. Yeah, we should be merciful people. We should be peacemakers. They'll pick and choose parts of the Sermon on the Mount that fit with the morals of Western culture. They want the kingdom. What they don't want is the king. Perish the thought that we would bring our lives into submission to Jesus as king. That's a totally foreign idea within our culture. But we want to borrow from some Christian ethics along the way to kind of make ourselves more moral people. So morality is good, ethics are good, but if all you have is good behavior, if all you've got is just this kind of trying to self-improve, then fundamentally, who's still on the throne? It's still self. You're just trying to be a better self. And that's a dead-end street. All right, and the final road, the final version of the broad road, is religion rise. Some of you live on religion rise. It's a nice little uh, upward-sloping hill. Religion rise, it's maybe a minority uh, group here, but I mention it partly because I think in Jesus' own day, there were a lot of people who lived and drove and walked on religion rise, like the Pharisees. So if you think of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, these were some of the most religious people you could meet. They were absolutely committed to keeping the law, absolutely committed to all these religious practices, all these spiritual practices, far more than most people were. The problem was their hearts were so completely disconnected from God that it was empty and it was nothing. And still today, maybe it's a minority group, but there are people, maybe, maybe some here, where you feel like what God requires of you is simply to be a good Christian and go through these kind of Christian practices and do good spiritual things and these religious practices. And that's kind of the whole ballgame for you. And the reality is that there are people who have gone to church every Sunday of their lives who are still walking the broad road. You know that? There are people who, who serve in churches and give to churches and and, and have been maybe baptized even or christened or confirmed and gone through all of these religious things, spiritual things, thinking that's the point. But fundamentally, they're still walking the broad road. Don't ever think that the difference between the broad road and the narrow road is the religious versus the irreligious. That's not the distinction that Jesus is making. Some of the most religious people you will ever meet are on the broad road. Some of the most committed people to their own religious practices or their own spiritual ideas are still walking on the broad road, the road 
of self. Some of the nicest people that you will ever meet. Don't think that the broad road is just for the bad people. And the narrow road's the road where all the good people walk. No, it's not, that's not the distinction Jesus is making either. Some of the nicest people you will ever meet, the sweetest, the kindest, the loveliest people, are still walking the broad road. I know that's hard to hear because you say, well, surely not. If they're so good-hearted, how could they possibly be on the broad road? But this is the point. It's not about the quality of our behavior it's not about the, the commitment to religious practices. It's about the condition of our heart and ultimately who is on the throne of our lives. And if you peel back all those layers and it's still self on the throne, then it's still the broad road. So there are good people on this road. There are religious people on this road. There are all kind, You can't even necessarily tell Who's on that broad road? They may look just like you and I, but they're still walking the broad road, the road of self. So if that's the broad road, let's park that for a minute and come over and think about the narrow road that Jesus is describing. What is this narrow road? Well, quite simply, the narrow road is the way of Jesus. It's the road of discipleship. It's the road of taking up the call and taking up your cross and following Christ. It is the road of living out what Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why it's this passage that starts the conclusion to the whole message. Because Jesus has now wrapped up all this teaching and he's saying, if you want to live this out, if you want this to determine your life, you're going to have to walk the narrow road. It's not the road that our culture is walking. It's not the road that the world is walking. It's the road of discipleship and apprenticing to Jesus. And it's a road of coming honestly before God and saying, God, I want to place you on the throne of my life. I know that can sound like a cliche and something that we can maybe give lip service to, but I think this is the hardest thing a human being can ever do. So counterintuitive, runs completely against the grain of our natural self to say, God, I'm taking myself off the throne. I am not going to be the Lord of my own life anymore. I'm not going to be the one determining the course of my life. I give that to you, God. I surrender that to you. I want you to be in the driver's seat of my life. I want you to be on the throne of my life. I want you to direct my paths. I want to give every part of my life over to you, and I want you to be the authority. I want you to be the defining reality in my life. And then out of that place, out of that place of surrender to God and placing Jesus on the throne of our lives, then by the grace of God, we take steps to start walking out the teachings of Jesus. And that's a narrow road because it means living out what Jesus has just been talking about. It means coming to God and saying, God, I want you to help me to become poor in spirit. You think about where the Sermon on the Mount started. God, help me to be poor in spirit. Help me to cultivate this humility in my life where I recognize who I am before you. God, kill the pride. Put to death all this arrogance in my life, this pride where I think I know best. God, give me that, that poor in spirit heart. It's when we ask God to help us to mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We learn to mourn and grieve over our sin. Mourning over the world and the state that it is in. Mourning with others. Weeping with others, cultivating empathy in our lives, where we say, God, would you help me to become the meek? 
Blessed are the meek. God, help me to develop this heart of meekness, a gentleness towards other people. Help me not to be harsh with them. Help me not to be brash with people. Help me not to steamroll over other people, but to have the spirit of meekness. God, help me to be the merciful, to move towards other people with compassion and kindness and love and grace and patience and understanding. God, help me to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's hard, isn't it? God, change my heart so that I long for the things that matter to you not just longing for all this stuff that's trivial and distracting and superficial. God, give me a heart after you. Help me to truly desire you above all things. God, make me the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. God, give me a heart of purity. Help me to put to death everything that's contaminating my life, contaminating my mind, contaminating my my actions. God, give me purity. Make me pure before you. God, help me to be those who are peacemakers. Help me to be a peacemaker, to bring your shalom into situations. And that's just the Beatitudes. That's just the first eight verses of the Sermon on the Mount. But this is the narrow road, isn't it? It's to say, Jesus, I want you to cultivate this life in me. I want you to cultivate this heart in me. And I will tell you that it is not easy. Like, I wish I could stand here and say that following Jesus is easy. I'd love to be able to do that. It's not. If it was, it wouldn't be called the narrow road, would it? It would just be another version of the broad road. But the road of discipleship is a hard road because it means saying no. It means saying no to our flesh and the things that you really want to do, the way you want to react, the way you want to respond, the way you think that situation should be dealt with, the way you want to relate to that. It means saying no to all of that, saying no to our flesh. It means saying no to the cultural script that the world gives us and living in a different direction to so many people around you. It means putting all of that aside and walking in the way that Jesus has laid before us to live. And that's not easy. And if the road you're walking feels real easy and real broad and real wide, then guess what? You might be on the wrong road. That's not the road we're called to walk. It's the narrow road. It's the road where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's the road where Jesus says, if anyone wants to build a tower, doesn't he sit down first and count the cost before he even starts? It's a hard road following Jesus. But, there is a but. Here's the crucial thing. The same Jesus who says to us, enter through the narrow gate. Just a few chapters later in Matthew 11, you know what he says? Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am what? Gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. The yoke, by the way, was a description of following a rabbi. You take, when you wanted to follow a rabbi, you take on the yoke of the rabbi. You become an apprentice to that rabbi. Jesus says, you take my yoke on you. It is an easy yoke. How in the world can one rabbi say two things like that? Isn't he talking out of both sides of his mouth? How can he stand there and say, enter through the narrow gate 
few chapters later, my yoke is easy. Here is the paradox, this beautiful paradox of the Christian life, that the narrow road is the easy yoke of Jesus. The narrow road is the easy yoke. Come on, that's good news. It's one and the same. You've got to be able to hold a certain tension here. There's a paradox to this, but the same road. It's a narrow road, but it's an easy yoke. Yes, in some ways, the way of Jesus is hard. Yeah, it means saying, no, it's hard to be patient with people sometimes, right? It's hard to love people that are difficult to love. It's hard to say no to your flesh sometimes. It's hard not to be selfish sometimes. Following Jesus is hard, but it's an easy yoke because it comes out of relationship with Jesus. It comes out of abiding deeply in the vine as Jesus has invited us to. It comes out of a living, breathing encounter with the living God and being filled with His Spirit and being surrounded by the presence of Jesus. It comes out of a space where we can say, I'm already loved. I'm already forgiven. Come on, are you waking up now? I'm already accepted. I'm already chosen. I'm already reconciled to God. I'm already righteous before the Father. I've received that as a gift, so I don't have to earn it. I don't have to strive for it. I don't have to grasp it. It's mine. I stand in the grace of God. That's the foundation. Now, if you're not walking the narrow road out of that foundation, you know what you're doing? It's, it's self-effort, it's works, it's willpower, it's probably guilt, it may be obligation, chances are it's condemnation. It's all of that stuff. Put that aside and come back and ground yourself in the reality that God loves you and His favor rests upon you and His Spirit is within you. Now, when you walk the narrow road out of that place, it doesn't feel so bad. Does it mean the going is easy? No. Does it mean saying no to my own selfishness suddenly becomes a walk in the park? No. It's still brutally hard to love you guys sometimes. I'm just uh... But when we come out of that foundation, there is this natural process where it is bearing fruit like the vine. The vine doesn't bear fruit because you shout at it. The vine bears fruit because it is the most natural process when the elements are in place. And so it will be with you. As you abide deeply in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will bear that fruit in your life. He won't bear it without you. It still takes your cooperation and submission to the work of the Spirit, but it will be a natural process of abiding and bearing fruit. So we've got to hold these two things together, my friends. Don't hear me. I'm not saying this to punish you. I'm not saying this so that you'll go out there and just try and try really, 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 really hard to be a good Christian. If you do that, that'll probably get you through till about Sunday lunch, and then you're dead in the water. That's it. Game over. But if you would be willing to walk the narrow road out of an abiding love for Jesus, increasingly aware of just how much He delights in you, and that really you're, all, you're just seeking to express a righteousness that is already yours in Christ Jesus anyway, that is a beautiful, natural, and freeing place out of which to pursue the life of God. That's the road Jesus has called us to walk. It's the narrow road, but it's the easy yoke. All right. Finally, let me just touch on the destination of these two roads. The broad road, where does it lead? Verse 13, broad is the road that leads to destruction. That word uh, literally means ruin. 
And I think it's easy to assume, oh, well, Jesus is just talking about hell. He just means that if you walk that road, then eventually you'll go to hell. Well, maybe that's part of what he's saying, but I think the point is that the destruction actually starts now. That if you live this kind of life, it's a ruinous life now. It's a wasted life now. If you live this life now, you are living outside of your created purpose. You're living outside of God's intention. You're living beyond what the image of God was intended to cultivate in your life. And you're cutting yourself off from the source of life and power and freedom, who is the Holy Spirit. And then you get to the end of your life, and you stand before God one day, and you hear Him say, well, what in the world was that? There's a good performance, but you completely missed the point. That was a great show you put on down there. What was that about? You missed what I'd put you there to do, which was to know me and enjoy me and reflect me in your life. So the road of destruction, it's a ruinous life now. And yes, it is a ruinous life in eternity because ultimately the road of self leads to exclusion in eternity from God's eternal kingdom. But the narrow road, where does that lead? Jesus says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. The Greek word there is zoe. Anyone called Zoe here? That's what, there you go, that's what your name means. Zoe, Zoe, life, means life. And again, easy to think, oh, Jesus is just talking about going to heaven when we die. Well, yes, but there's more. Zoe life doesn't just start in heaven, it starts now. When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just describing a future reality, it's describing a reality that begins in the present. Zoe life is simply a God-infused life. It's a life full of the presence of God. It's a life within the will of God. It's the kind of life that Jesus talked about when he said, I have come that you may have life, same word, zoe, and have it to the full or have it in abundance. It's the kind of life that Jesus can. But see, we think abundance, oh, that must mean money, wealth, material possessions, status, and a good reputation. Well, that's because of our culture. But that's not the way Jesus thinks about abundance. Abundant life is being rich toward God. It's an abundant life because we're full of the Holy Spirit and we know we're loved and reconciled to Jesus and we're living in the presence of God. We're living in His kingdom. We're pursuing His will. It's the blessing of seeing over time your heart changed by Jesus. It's the life that comes from gradually, little bit by little bit, knowing that you are being conformed to the image of the Son. It's the amazing privilege of seeing in little ways Ordinary conversations, God works through you to serve and bless and love and encourage and touch the life of someone else. That's Zoe life. Not just natural life, Zoe life. Life in the spirit. Life infused with the power and the presence of God. Doesn't mean that's easy. Again, this is the narrow road. It's hard decisions, a million hard decisions every day. But it's true life because it's life in the way of Jesus. Philip Yancey, in his book, Just Wondering, he talks about all the people that he's interviewed over the years. He's, he's a journalist and a writer, and he has interviewed many, many, many people from all walks of life, all types of people. And he says... In this one chapter, he says, I've categorized all these people that I've interviewed 
into two categories. The first group he calls the stars. And he says these are all people, like these are TV celebrities, these are athletes at the top of their game, these are famous authors, people at the top of their field, celebrities for all kinds of reasons, well-accomplished, well-known people, with all the status symbols that our culture brings. And he says these are the stars, these are the people who have made something of themselves in this world. And he says in his book, really straightforwardly, this is probably the most miserable bunch of people you could ever hope to meet. These people, he said, they are hopelessly addicted to psychotherapy. They have incurable self-doubt. They have all sorts of dysfunctional relationships, marriages. These are not people that you and I want to envy, even though they are the people we obsess and fixate our lives upon. And then he says there's another group, and he calls this group the servants. He says, these are the people I've talked to over the years who have poured their lives out for God and for other people. And he names people like Dr. Paul Brand, who worked for 20 years among the poorest of the poor, treating leprosy patients in rural India. He mentions people like Henry Nowen, who at the height of his teaching career, left his post at Harvard and went and worked with a community of intellectually and disabled, uh, physically disabled people in, in Canada, lived out his days among that community. He talks about people who have left high-paying jobs and great career trajectories to work as relief workers in Somalia, Ethiopia, and Bangladesh. He mentions people with PhDs who are now working in the Amazon somewhere translating the Bible into obscure languages. These are the servants, and they're walking the narrow road. And as he reflects on all this, he says this, as I now reflect on the two groups side by side, stars and servants, the servants clearly emerge as the favoured ones, the graced ones. They work for low pay, long hours and no applause, wasting their talents and skills among the poor and uneducated. But somehow, in the process of losing their lives, they have found them. They have received the peace that is not of this world. That's the narrow road, my friends. That's the narrow road. And these lives that he's describing are hard lives. They're lives full of sacrifice and cost and no credit and very little thanks. But these are people who have found life. These are people who have found Zoe and who are experiencing abundant life on the narrow road. These are people whose lives testify to the fact that in the kingdom of God, the way up is down and the way to be first is to be last. And the one who wants to be greatest among you must become the servant. And the way to gain your life is to lose it. That's the upside down kingdom of heaven. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's the narrow road. So, my friends, two roads. Which one are you on? Which is, you know, I think every day we're making that choice, aren't we? There is a decision, but then there are many, many, many decisions as to which road we're going to walk. The road of self or the road of discipleship. Do you know the most encouraging thing about walking the narrow road is that Jesus has walked it before you. That's the hope. Man, if we're just walking this road by ourselves, we're sunk. We've got nothing. But we walk this road because Jesus walked that road 
literally walked that road through the crowded streets of Jerusalem up a hill to Calvary. He walked the narrow road and he hung and he bled and he died walking that narrow road for you. He lived it out for you. And because he walked that road for you then, he walks it with you now. So as you take up your cross and you start walking that road, don't focus on what's around you. Don't focus on how rough the terrain is under your feet. Don't focus on how heavy the cross is that you're carrying. You just look up and look at Jesus. He's there right in front of you, walking step by step. You just follow him step after step after step. He is with you. He is your companion. He is your friend. He is your guide on the narrow road. So let's fix our eyes on him. As scripture says, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's consider him who endured such hostility, such opposition from sinners so that we might not be discouraged and lose heart on the narrow road. Let's walk in the way of Jesus. Let's walk in the way of discipleship. Let's journey with Jesus on the narrow road. Let's pray. Jesus, we hear your call this morning to us. We hear those two words again, follow me. So simple and so easy to respond to in a way, and yet as we think about the road that you're calling us to walk, Jesus, we know that it's a road so different to the one that we naturally want to walk down. God, our hearts this morning are saying yes, but so much of the rest of our lives are saying no. So much within us, we feel it now, Jesus. I feel it. Just that tearing apart of a spirit that longs to follow you and a flesh that wants to run the opposite way. Oh, Jesus, would you come and, and give us your grace? Jesus, we have no hope of taking even a single step on this road without you. Jesus, would you come now and fill us with your grace? Would you come and fill us with fresh power of your spirit? Would you come and, and take us by the hand this morning and say, again, I will walk with you. Follow me. And would you show us day by day what it means to follow you on the narrow road? Not just now as we sit here and we, we think about these things front and center, but once we leave today in our homes, workplaces, schools and universities, Jesus, would you show us what it means every moment of the day to walk the narrow road? And in those times where we feel like we've messed up and we, we just can't go another step, God, would you just come alongside us and pour your grace afresh into our lives and remind us again that we are loved and we are so valued and so cherished by you and we already stand forgiven in your family. Jesus, may all this be out of grace. May all this, everything we've talked about, everything we, we see in your word, may we live it out in freedom and grace in your spirit, not just in ourselves. God, we ask for your strength and power. 
as we follow you. Make us your disciples, we pray. Help us to walk the narrow road. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.